Good morning and welcome to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill. And folks, we are entering into the fifth week of Lent. Passion Week is almost upon us. But today we are continuing our journey with what we believe, looking at the Apostles' Creed. And our topic for today is the forgiveness of sins. Also, we're going to be listening to a clip called Three Words, which was sent to me by Steve from Crown Ministries. And if you have a moment, you should look up the video for it on YouTube. It is very, very good. But we're going to have that. And then later on, joining us also is Pastor Chris Stoll of Tullamore Bible Church on his third part of his series, Discovering the Real Jesus. And we look forward to him sharing that with us. But first, let us begin our time by listening to our lectionary psalm for the day, Psalm 130, read to us by Charlize. Thank you, Charlize. We're reading from Psalms 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Oh, 
Amen. So that was the choir of King's College, Cambridge, and their rendition of Psalm 130. And again, my thanks to Charlize for reading the psalm to us. So what do we believe? We continue our journey through the Apostles' Creed. But again, let us remind ourselves of the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Well, we have progressed nearly the whole way through it. We've only three phrases left to go. And the phrase that we're looking at today is the forgiveness of sins. The Greek word for sin most frequently used in the New Testament originally meant missing the target. It's an old archery term. And it implies that if we don't hit the bullseye, then we have missed the target at which one has aimed. It implies that in sinning, we fail to be what we should be, as it goes and states in Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have not realized our God-given potential. Sins may be wrongdoings, offenses against what we know to be right, but sin is more than actions or even thoughts that we know to be wrong. It is essentially deep-seated selfishness. It may take the form of arrogant disregard for the welfare of others, or it may masquerade as humility. Our real offence is not against others or ourselves. It is against God, our Creator. The psalmist cries, Against you, you only have I sinned. And we can find that in Psalm 51 and verse 4. And only the one who is offended can forgive. We receive God's forgiveness when we repent and trust in Christ. To repent is like that word when we go and tell our children that they should say sorry. And sorry means that we won't do it again. How often have you told that to your child? With the word repentance, it means that we are doing a U-turn and due to genuine sorriness, repentance, we are choosing not to do that again. So we receive God's forgiveness when we repent and trust in Christ, whose sinless life, death and resurrection made possible our acceptance by God. That is the forgiveness of sins. Do you know the forgiveness of sins? Zechariah in his song at the birth of John the Baptist goes and states that we would know that we have salvation, that we have eternal life because our sins have been forgiven. If you don't know your sins forgiven, how can you know that you have eternal life? Because they are interlinked. It is indeed our sin that will keep us from having eternal life. And that is why Christ came into the world to die for us. Something worth us thinking on and pondering upon during this Lenten season.
Welcome back to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill. So we have been looking at the Apostles' Creed and looking at the phrase, the forgiveness of sins. Now God has forgiven us our sins through the person of Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross, should we accept him as our Lord and Saviour. We have also been looking at Psalm 130, actually just listening to the reading of God's word to us. Now we're going to listen to a clip that was put together by Crown Jesus Ministries and its focus is on what is the real meaning of Easter and it is called Three Words. I would encourage you to go and look it up if you can on YouTube and look at the actual video and the artwork that's been done while this message is being read. So that's something for you to do in a while. Also, we are going to have in this section a look at our Old Testament reading or listen to our Old Testament reading, which we brought to us by Chris on the Valley of Dry Bones from Ezekiel and chapter 37. And then later on, joining us will be Pastor Chris Toll from Tullamore Bible Church sharing his third part of discovering the real Jesus. And we look forward to that also. So, with no further ado, let us listen to this clip, The Three Words. Imagine that first Easter. There are simply not enough words for us to adequately convey all that happened to God's Son as they cruelly led him away. Although no fault in him was found, crucify, they shouted still, as they forced Jesus to carry a wooden cross towards Golgotha's hill. With two guilty criminals on a cross, one hung on either side, in the middle stood his cross, yes, the cross where Jesus would die. The crowd mocked, the people jeered, and yet he still hung there for them. The sky darkened. It looked like it was all over, but that is when Jesus exhaled to utter these three words. It is finished. Yes, it was done. Completed. Jesus had fulfilled God's rescue plan. Now forgiveness of sins was available to every child, woman and man. They took Jesus down from his cross, his followers in anguish and gloom, and they buried his lifeless body and rolled a stone over his tomb. But was that really it over? Was that really the end of the story? No, because what happened next would forever rewrite history. You see, early in the morning, just three days later, the most incredible thing, an angel appeared to an unsuspecting woman, her name Mary Magdalene. To her surprise and amazement, the stone had been completely rolled away. Don't be afraid, for he is not here, the angel would boldly say. Heaven erupted to declare these three words. He has risen. Many couldn't believe it. Even the guards made up lies to spread, but the truth was undeniable. Jesus was alive. He had risen from the dead. You see, he appeared to his disciples, 
and over 500 people in one go, he had truly triumphed over death, conquered sin, and defeated every foe. And yet, before he ascended to heaven to sit on his rightful throne, he promised to those who would follow him, we would never be alone. Our reading is from Ezekiel chapter 37, reading verses 1 to 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked on the tendons, and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered him. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole of the house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Amen. Love that song. Okay, I got, I got to do this. Um, this wasn't on the program, but when I was coming off the bus, a little guy, a little boy about five years old, stopped me and he said, Mr. Haas, will you sing them bones? 
And, and there, we used to do a song all the time called Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. It's been a while. Let's, let's hum our parts a cappella. Make sure we got everything just right. A cappella. That's an, that's an old Italian word that means we don't need you. That's great. Okay, you can give us the key. That'd be nice. I don't remember what key we did this in. It don't, it, it don't matter. We're good. We'll find it. Just, oh. just give us any key. Oh. Okay, here we go. Um. There you go, Skippy. Pick one of those. You're good. We're not that good. Put it in the key of, put it in the key of B. Key of B. Be nice. Actually, I think we did it in B flat. But I'll give you a B because I'm sure you guys will flat it yourselves. So we can go ahead. Okay, just a nice, nice hum. Okay, ready? Hum. Did I hear that? Did I hear right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What was that? Oh, that, that was my vocal debut. Yeah. Debut's an old French word that means I don't need you either. So. Welcome back to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill. The Gospel reading that we're looking at is from John in chapter 11, which is about the resurrection of Lazarus. And this is one of my favourite passages of scripture, especially in regard to the person of Martha. However, if you wish to hear my thoughts on this passage of scripture, then I would invite you to come along and join us for our Palm Sunday celebration next Sunday night at 7pm in the Methodist Church in Tullamore, where I will be looking at this passage. For now, I'm going to read it and I am going to share with you just about Jesus being the resurrection. But let us look at the conversation. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. And we'll leave it there. Just an extract from that passage in John and chapter 11. Now Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. That's the words that he goes and uses about himself in this passage of scripture. Here is just a reflection on who Jesus is. And that is that he is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus' resurrection previews the experience of all who follow him. Jesus wasn't the first human being, though, to be raised from the dead. There are Old Testament examples, such as the son of the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings in chapter 17, and occurrences by Jesus' own command, as when he restored Jairus' daughter in Matthew 9, the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7, and, of course, 
his friend Lazarus, as we've been talking about here in John chapter 11. But each of those people ultimately died again. When Jesus was resurrected after his crucifixion, he was raised to perfection, ongoing life, both spiritual and physical, as the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the prototype for all who trust him. And we know this through the following scriptures that go and expound these points. And he, that is Jesus, is the head of the church, the body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And we find that in Paul's writings in Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 18. But also John, writing to the churches, goes and says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Christ Jesus who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and we read that in Revelations and chapter 1 verses 4 to 5 so what does that mean to us well Jesus' resurrection from from death opens the way for all who trust in him to follow him in a resurrection like his when he returns our ultimate hope is not just for our souls to go to heaven but for our physical bodies to be raised to a new life like Jesus' was and that's where it ties back in with the reading that we had earlier on from the book of Ezekiel and the valley of dry bones that God once again breathes life back into our physical bodies, raising us at the day of resurrection. So why is this important? Well, it's important for us as Christians because death is not the end. It's just the entryway or the gateway or the doorway to a richer and fuller life with God. That is the exciting thing that we can discover about who Jesus is. Next, we will have Pastor Christol of Tullamore Bible Church sharing with us about the real Jesus, enabling us to discover who he is. Now, if you've been enjoying Chris's talks and you'd like to find out more, why don't you go and check him and his teachings out on the Tullamore Bible Church website, www org. Now on that he also has a portion of it that is dedicated to a clear presentation of the gospel entitled How to Be Right with God and What Does the Bible Really Say? It's a friendly explanation of the gospel with links to various resources for further explanation. So if you wish to go and find that out, why not go online and discover those things for yourself and their thoughts on those issues for me it's a great privilege to have pastor chris coming and sharing with us each month and going through his series on discovering the real jesus nowadays with everything that is going on jesus is somewhat lost in our own wranglings and understandings and workings out of our faith when jesus is supposed to be the central person because after all isn't that what christianity is that we are followers of Christ. So folks, that's it from me, and I will leave you with Pastor Chris. Thank you.
Well, a very good morning to you once again. I'm so glad you joined us as we continue to look at this series we've entitled Real Jesus, where we try to remove misconceptions about Christ and rediscover who he really is from God's word, the Bible. It's actually really eye-opening as you look at how God reveals himself in his word. And the more you get into it, the more you let God speak for himself, the more you get a genuine, authentic picture of this person that we call Jesus Christ. And we're going to get more into that today. Last time we were together, we looked at the account from Mark's gospel where Jesus cleansed a man from his leprosy. And today we're going to look at a scene that takes place a couple weeks after that. And Jesus is in Capernaum, which is a busy town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And he's about to meet a person as he walks down by the sea, a tax collector. Now, unbeknown to this man, this encounter with Jesus was going to have a profound impact upon him, so much so that it was going to change the trajectory of his life completely. So let's have a look at it. We'll pick up the story in Mark chapter 2, verse number 13. You can turn there with me if you'd like to. Uh, It reads like this. Then he, Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, before we talk about this man at the tax office, let's talk about the tax office itself. It says, as he passed by, he came upon a tax office. Now, what was this place exactly? Well, the word that's used here literally means a place of toll. And as Jesus is walking along uh, the road, likely the one that ran down from Damascus uh, through that region, uh, along these roads, which served as trade routes, there were tax offices or toll offices where the Roman Empire could charge travelers and tradesmen as they went on their way. Now, how do you feel when you're traveling through a place and you come upon a toll bridge? Uh, I remember traveling through the Appalachian Mountains in the state of Pennsylvania. And and through the mountains, there's these massive stretches of motorway called turnpikes. Now, they're really handy if you want to get from one side of the mountain range to the other, but boy, is it expensive. And when I went to exit the road, it wasn't two or three quid. It was over $30. Now, in fairness, I did find out later that this uh, Pennsylvania turnpike is rated as the most expensive toll road in the world. Uh, but, but, you know, that's why I don't really complain a whole lot about the tolls over here. Uh, but anyway, if you and I were traveling with Jesus uh, and we came across this toll office, we wouldn't view that as a positive thing. We'd probably see it as an annoyance. In fact, the men that ran these Roman tax booths were known to charge people more than they were meant to. Uh, then they would just pocket the excess themselves. And this is what Jesus walks into. I mean, it's really annoying circumstance. And coming upon this establishment uh, would have been an annoyance for anyone. But watch this. Jesus saw the annoyance as an opportunity. See, along life's road, you will regularly face annoyances. Whether it's the behavior of another person or just an undesirable predicament, uh, we often respond to these things in sinful ways. Uh, You know, with a person, we'd often respond by attacking the person, by giving like for like, or retaliating, or even tearing them down to other people. 
And whether it's retaliation, resentment, or some other attack on the person that we see as the source of our perceived problem, these are actually very unhealthy, sinful ways in which we seek to release that inner pressure of annoyance. Sometimes annoyances are such that you just can't fault any one person, but they agitate you anyway, you know, whether it's the weather or an illness or an injury or something like that. Uh, with these, we tend to complain or we give into a victim mentality, falling into self-focus. You know, it's amazing how selfish we can get when we're fixated on our own difficulties, isn't it? And it's so wrong. Uh, But here we don't see Jesus complaining about an annoying circumstance or blaming an annoying person for his trouble. He has a much bigger picture in mind. So he approaches the toll booth, right? And he sees this man named Levi, and that was his Hebrew name, by the way. Um, Matthew was his Greek name. Now, this is an interesting character. He was a Jew, but he was working for the Romans, collecting revenue for the very government that was oppressing his countrymen. Now, a Jew collecting taxes from his countrymen for the Romans was considered a traitor, unclean, a sellout. So he says to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. He did not just blindly follow Jesus as some suggest. I mean, think about it. Jesus' claims, his teachings, his miracles were all public. Matthew was well aware that this Jesus was no ordinary man. In fact, as a Jew, Matthew would have been familiar with all the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. And even this early in Jesus' ministry, he had already fulfilled a significant number of those prophecies. And Matthew couldn't help but wonder, is this the Messiah? See, on the outside, Matthew looked like a hopeless case. But the whole time he was watching, his heart being moved and affected by the ministry of Jesus. See, what you and I see on the outside isn't always an indication of what's happening on the inside. And, you know, we can be that way sometimes as well, can't we? I mean, on the outside, you might appear to be disinterested in spiritual things, or you might appear to have it all together from a religious standpoint. But on the inside, you can't help but wonder, what would it be like if I stood before God? See, that's exactly where Matthew was when Jesus called him. And then Matthew responds to this call. He gets up and he follows Jesus. And the next thing uh, it tells us here is that Matthew has Jesus and his disciples over to his house, along with a bunch of these other tax collectors. Verse 15 tells us that it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. Now, this is very significant because sitting down to a meal with the likes of Matthew and his fellow tax collectors would have been very socially unacceptable for any self-respecting Jew. Jesus was determined to follow his mission of seeking and saving the lost, even if it drew criticism. He didn't care what these guys thought. He cared much about what the Father expected and very little about what those around him expected. Verse 16 tells us this, that when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now, was Jesus just hanging out with these guys, having a laugh? No. It was with a very specific purpose in mind. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was not just passing the time with these guys like one of the lads, right? He saw himself as a physician tending to sick souls. Notice uh, the way he interacts with these guys. He wasn't spending time with them to blend in with them. He was spending time with them for the purpose of helping them. Now, the Pharisees, these religious people, were quite content with their own religious performance. They thought that God was impressed with them. They didn't see themselves as being in a state of spiritual need. Rather, they saw themselves as being quite well spiritually. But Jesus tells them that he can't do much for people who have that mindset of self-achieved righteousness. See, a man who's drowning never calls for the lifeguard until he's actually ready to admit that he's drowning. And Matthew and his friends, they knew they were in spiritual need. They were aware that their sins stood between them and God and that Jesus was the only one who could fix that for them. And those are the people that Jesus can cleanse. Do you remember the man with leprosy? No amount of self-cleaning was going to remove his leprosy. Only Jesus could do that. And in the same way, these guys at Matthew's house, they knew that no amount of self-cleaning could remove their sin. Only Jesus could do that. Now, how about you? Like the Pharisees, have you been relying on your own self-achieved righteousness to somehow make you clean before God? Or, Or like Matthew, have you come to the place where you recognize your need for the great physician to clean your sin away and make you right? before a holy God.